0: Welcome to Desert Island Risks, the podcast where we speak to industry leaders to hear about the risks and rewards behind their success. Today, we welcome Helen Gordon to the podcast. Helen is CEO of Granger, a century-old business that is now the largest listed residential landlord in the UK, providing almost 9,000 homes for their customers up and down the country. Joining in 2016, Helen helped Granger make history as the first FTSE 250 company with women as chair, CEO and CFO. Helen previously worked at RBS where she was Global Head of Real Estate Asset Management in the wake of the global financial crisis and has also held senior positions at both Railtrack and Legal & General. She currently sits on the board of Derwent London and has previously been a trustee of the College of Estate Management and a member of the board Of the Covent Garden Market Authority. As immediate past president of the British Property Federation, non-executive of British Waterways and a board member of EPRA, Helen has been a champion for real estate having a positive impact on the wider world. She is quoted as saying, the physical connection we have to people's lives means the property sector has a particular responsibility but also a huge opportunity. Helen Gordon Welcome to Desert Island Risks. Thank you. Tell me what is that responsibility and what is the
1: opportunity? Uh, we know and I think during this pandemic we've established it even more that the built environment, our surroundings, our homes, um, physical buildings, our office space, in our retail stores all have an impact on how we feel and our mental health and well-being. And, uh, I think some of us have been talking about this for a long time but this year we've really established that that's that's the case. What we do in the industry is really establish buildings that will last for centuries in some instances and we have this huge responsibility to get it right. Treating
0: people right has been a consistent theme when we talk to other people about you and the sort of businesses you run. How do you strike a balance between making tough calls
1: and keeping people at the heart of what you do? So I have a very strong view that people should be in the right slot. And quite often going into organisations, I've had to make calls on either right-sizing, downsizing, making redundancies. I'm quite proud of the fact that many of the people who I've gone through that process with, still speak to me, (laughs) more than speak to me, uh, treat me as a bit of a mentor and call me. And I think if you do it well, actually what you do is you liberate people. All the time I'm looking, have I got the right people in the right slots? And and I think the hardest thing, Emily, is the thing that you do, which is actually establish whether or not that person's right for the slot. Well,
0: look, it's, it is about um, making those tough calls, but actually you're doing no one any favours by keeping them in the wrong role. And listen, on that point around people still talking to you, we spoke to James Rowney, Head of Solutions and Restructuring at RBS and former colleague of Helen in the wake of the global financial crisis, who shared one of your quotes he returns to time and time again that speaks to this very point.
2: I recall on her leaving speech, she, she she used an analogy, and it was one that I'd heard her use before, and she said, people are like tea bags. You never know how they will react until they are in hot water. And I really liked that. I liked that saying, and actually... I did work with Helen in difficult times and you know if I was to bring that analogy to actually how Helen reacted in hot water then she'd be up there with the, with the Darjeelings of the tea world using that analogy.
0: I love that. I, I wondered whether it was Lancashire tea but he said and insisted it was,
1: was a Darjeeling
0: so I think a compliment there.
1: That's great. I am I loved working with James and the team at RBS and it was a really difficult, difficult time and they had 38 billion of distressed real estate across the world and I was spending my time on planes and trains and dashing all over the place and James is a very solid person looking after the UK business and... Uh, He's right, I mean we used to we used to be looking at businesses that didn't know how they were going to make it to the end of the week, and the, quite a lot of the work that we did was looking at acquiring and turning around things so quickly and the speed at which people work. And and when I reflected that some corporates are looking at one or two specific properties a year or whatever, and we were looking at sort of 28, 30 a week, saying, how on earth do we get out of this if someone had handed the keys back to an office building in Berlin or a shopping centre in Scotland or or whatever? And um, there were some really tough times for people, um, and... Amazing how some very young people got the most fantastic grounding from going through that. Again, coming back to that uh, subject of the right people in the right jobs. But on this
0: theme of, of adversity, let's take a step back early on in your career where you actively chose to dunk yourself in the hot water. Let's have a listen to David Harding, former CEO of RailTrack, where you two worked together when the business's operations were partially being taken under the state's control.
2: RailTrack's revenue came from the government one way or another. And it was clear just after I joined that the government were not happy with RailTrack. Um, The decisions were made by government effectively over a weekend. Uh, They had placed this order and it went went to court. So we were left with a a parent company with a lot of property assets. Um, And those of us that were left in the parent company then in a sense had a choice of whether we were going to battle on for what we thought was the right result or not. And at that point, Helen had a big choice. She could stay really with the railway side or she could come to the small parent company. And she decided instantly to come with the parent company. And I think that was a career risk. It meant uh, we weren't sure that we could get value for all of the property. We had no actual cash at the time so that was a very big risk and she came and I think what was impressive was that most if not all of her team came with her. They had a great respect for Helen and Helen could have stayed with the railway side and had a very comfortable role I'm quite sure Uh, but no she she took the risk and came with us. At the end of the day we got a, a reasonable settlement for the shareholders. She had a very good eye for value. Some months later government actually offered to buy some of the property and they named the price. And I think from memory, Helen achieved something like three times the price that government offered by selling it commercially.
0: Tell me more about that time, because you do speak of it as being
1: a pivotal point in your career. I think um, one of the things that that I learned from that was that the importance of shareholders in this equation, I mean, Railtrack had been privatised on the basis of a lot of people believe that they were buying into the infrastructure of the UK and they didn't think that a change of government would effectively lead to a renationalisation of it which is effectively what was happening. We had purposely set up the property business outside the railway so there could be no accusations of subsidy across from from uh, the state and the railway business into the property business but of course it left it orphaned when the government came to take it back into government control. I was asked to sign the declaration of solvency of the property business. And I didn't hesitate for that, even though, arguably, I could have found myself unemployed. And at the time, I was the main breadwinner in our household. I did what I felt very strongly was the right thing to do. I was surprised, but really rewarded by the fact that, that my team also felt it was the right thing to do. And even though, as David's mentioned, David was a fantastic leader during this time, very, very calm. And uh, he... He warned us that we might not be able to get any money for the business and we went across there. And the biggest shareholder, strangely, was um, one of the biggest shareholders, was Legal & General. And I think, although it was a massive risk at the time, it it helped me because later on when I came to be offered the role at Legal & General, a role I'd never done before, I was looking at the same people across the table at that interview. Generally, how would you say you approach risk? And I realise you can't manage all risks, but I like to manage risks. I'm quite good at looking around the corners... And also, I think risk is very much about also an opportunity, an opportunity to get things right. It is the opposite side of it. And we do a lot of work now at Granger in in looking at the risks and as is required by all public companies. But often when we're going through that process, which we do at least once a month, Um, I'm always looking at the opportunity side of it. So I do like to be able to manage risks. I do think about how we lay off risks or control. And I, I also think it's important to amalgamate how many risks you're taking at the one time. But for me personally, you know, sometimes you just cannot have that security blanket and you have to do something in your career which actually... Says, what's the worst that can happen here? I get to spend a few months at home out of work. <laughs> <laughs> well, one
0: of the people you would be spending time with, of course, is John, your husband. Oh. Um, we spoke to John Anderson, barrister, judge, fighter pilot, and loving husband of Helen, who shared with us his view on the greatest risk you've ever taken, which, Helen, you made with no information, no underwriting whatsoever. Let's
2: have a listen. You want to know the greatest risk she ever took? Well, that's pretty easy. It was going on a blind date with me 27 years ago. It was set up by my sister uh, and um, we met at a restaurant on Chancery Lane and uh, never looked back. I think it was probably taking her for dinner to the Quality Chop House on Farringdon Road. But it it was a nice payback, actually, because um, Helen, a few years later, was able to introduce my sister to um, a very nice American whom she has since married. Uh, And uh, she, Helen, is now known within our family as Saint Helen, because my mother never thought we'd get Louise, my sister, off her hands. So all's well that ends well there.
1: (laughs) Tell me about that Saint Helen. Ah, uh, yeah, So actually, there was something about that first date which was that he took me to the Quality Chop House in Farringdon, where you sit on trestle tables. It used to be called something like the Working Men's Restaurant, and you sit in trestle tables. And I think he'd done it on the basis if he's short of conversation, he could talk to the people on the other side of him. If he, if I was boring him or whatever. But he was really entertaining with the people left and right and he's he's quite a co- quiet person but he can be great fun and I realised that he was a good person to be around and he was a kind and thoughtful person it, just in the way he sort of dealt with people so that was a good start. And yes, I was doing a deal for the Factory Outlet Centre in Ashford in Kent with BAA MacArthur Glen and a man by the name of John Nicolosi was doing all of the construction due diligence on that transaction he told me he was moving to London and I said how does your wife feel about that and he said I'm recently divorced and I said I must introduce you to some of my female friends and invited him to our flat in London for drinks and he fell in love with my sister-in-law and so that's been a great sort of uh, it's one of my best transactions No fee, but uh, <laughs> yeah. a good feeling. No, <laughs> no fee, but lots of lovely holidays in America. <laughs> Wonderful. Um,
0: well, look. Joking aside, your your long standing colleague Bob Hill, former commercial director at Milton Keynes Development Corporation, and property director at Railtrack, talked about your immense attention to detail being one of your defining traits.
3: I'm not very good at uh, detail. I'm i been patient to get going. But, um, in terms of the way we worked here, her, that was quite a good balance um, She was much more could be much more focused on the the detail than I ever was. She was a very analytical and thorough person, uh, Well, still is I'm sure so I think she's ideal for Granger I think that's that's that really is the point. If she was like a couple of guys that you you had on your podcast um I don't think that would be right for Granger. I think what she is is perfect for Granger.
1: Gosh, that's interesting, yeah. I remember probably one of the biggest risks I took was that I'd worked for John Lang and I asked Sir Martin Lang what would it take to make a woman a director and they made me a director of that business and I think I felt as a family business I thought I would stay there for the rest of my career and then the opportunity to go to Railtrack and one of the reasons was that I have realised that Everything was going to be about transport in the future. And Railtrack had these 200 or so fantastic sites that they needed to create value from. One of the first things that I did was I spent the first two months in the business just analysing the value. And I came up with this massive spreadsheet, not not on my own. I had a, a small team working with me and we analysed all the pros, what's the natural use of this site, etc., etc., and we presented it to the then uh, chief executive, uh, Gerald Corbett, and he said to me, "This is the analysis I've been waiting for." So, Bob probably remembers that moment of a reams of paper, which I analysed and gave the detail behind it.
0: He he speaks very fondly um, of you and of and of that time and and of the opportunity. Let's move to RBS when you joined RBS in the aftermath of the financial crisis. You had a huge number of assets to work out in a very short space of time. How did you find the balance between getting into the detail and meeting tough deadlines?
1: Yeah, I think actually the rail track training was the best of that. I mean, if you have a tsunami of assets and it felt like that coming towards you, you have to put in really strong processes and work out a way in which you can pocket things and bracket things together and so that was that was a great you know great training for that and equally looking after the life fund at uh, legal in general that was a a 5 billion pound fund in 2003 so you can see that that's you know that was a lot of real estate to deal with and if you got into the detail you would literally be lost what i would do is bracket them together and compartmentalize them and then i'd dip in to some of the detail and more of that was just to test the people that i was working with to see if they could be on top of it and then give them quite a lot of space to be able to either you know run a development portfolio or execute a you know a range of of disposals and sometimes and and it's held me in reasonable stead for Granger sometimes I was dealing with tens of thousands of units in Germany and I would literally be there almost with the penguin atlas you know sort of So where is this place? And it would be somewhere in the depths of Eastern Germany, Old East Germany, where people in RBS had lent money to these and I couldn't even find it on a map. Let her know, pronounce
0: it, I guess. (laughs) Well, look, it was a difficult time in the market, but particularly for you, I think, given the role you had. Despite you working in some pretty tough environments, one of the main traits many of our speakers shared with us was your... Sunny disposition and a wicked sense of humour. Let's have a listen to Chris Bond, director of Marwood 252 and a colleague of Helen's from Railtrack who shares his thoughts on this.
2: I think, oh dear, what's her greatest strength? Possibly a sense of humour because I think that keeps everything in balance. So it stops any kind of ego. It, it makes her approachable, and I think it also enables her to charm people and disarm people.
1: Tell us, what's your secret? How do you stay so positive? Maybe it is is the other side of the risk, which is the opportunity. I sometimes see my assistant, Michelle, rolling her eyes when somebody wants to have a conversation with me because, you know, time's so precious. But out of every opportunity to meet people I find people so interesting there's always something and I quite often remember those details because I'm genuinely interested you know so I remember people's children's names and things Mm -hmm. like that and uh, what they're up to and what they're doing so I just find people very very interesting and I suppose also property is about making connections you know, joking about sort of fixing my sister-in-law up, but actually I have introduced throughout my career so many people who I think they would get on really well and I think they could work together. So I'm I'm not sort of pinching your role anyway. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking more about in business, you know, when you sort of think... We can't help on that, but I know somebody who has got that site or has got that opportunity or could help you with that skills.
0: Yeah, it's joining
1: the dots, mm. it's, it's, and it is a people business. I'm very lucky. I come from a family, and um, our family WhatsApp group, I don't actually look at it in the office because they are so irreverent and they tell so many jokes, and they're about each other. And... Uh, I can't look at them sometimes because I'm giggling. <laughs> I think it is part of your secret in
0: how you keep things positive. Let's move on to legal in general. We, we spoke to Bill Hughes, head of real assets at Elgium and former colleague of Helen's, who spoke of another secret to your success. Let's have a listen.
3: I think one of the reasons that we work well together is because we share a view that, that one should be, as a leader, willing to challenge the, the status quo in the convention. But I think she's given me support in that and more confidence in how to address change in a a sector of the market, which historically has been very slow to change.
0: So on that point, how you bring about change in an industry that is
1: unfortunately known to be slower moving than other asset classes. So I think, first of all, you can learn from other industries in terms of the speed at which you execute things. I think... It was interesting that my experience at Elgin was before I went to RBS and at RBS if you didn't move quickly then people were going to be let go on the Friday if you didn't move quickly to do something. How do you bring about change and challenge the establishment? I think it's about being brave but I also think it's about doing your research and being willing to stand up sometimes for authority. I won't tell the particular incident in too much detail but Bloomberg building may not have happened had I not been prepared to challenge some of the senior leadership at, at Elgium and I knew that that was the right investment in the right location for Bloomberg and for LNG and Bill probably witnessed me doing my Violet Elizabeth bot where I was, you know, almost stamping my feet that this this will happen. So sometimes you have to be really quite forceful and then other times you have to use all your other powers of persuasion to move the obstacles but I think how do you bring about change I think it's about thinking a lot about the 20 year the 10 year the five year horizon and trends and sort of Bill's done fantastic work since I left on the green agenda but we actually decided that no one could sit on the Elgin platform without being trained in sustainability and we made that decision in about 2009 so it was 11 years ago and now it's every, on everybody's agenda but we trained everybody in Elgin at that time. What brought about the move to Granger? we shrunk the book so the distressed assets were about four billion from 38 and getting smaller by the day but also I've always had this view that um, housing is particularly important to people. I've never understood, and particularly because I was looking after Citizens Bank, Ulster Bank and RBS in Germany, and I could see that the professional rental sector was something that we were lacking in, in the UK. I thought the Granger model was very interesting. It had a family business and family feel to it. But it was also right on the cusp of this fantastic opportunity, which was the professionalisation of the rental sector. I mean, there's no other area of property, perhaps some of the high street, but there's no other area where property was held by so many small investors. And so there must be this opportunity to actually create something that could operate better and provide a better service. And given the shift towards
0: working in the wake of COVID, how do you see the residential sector changing
1: in the next five years? So I think... I think Covid's just accelerated lots of trends that we've seen coming over the horizon. I think the importance of a quality of home is going to be quite important. I think this period has told us whether it's everything from collecting shopping to collecting parcels, that a degree of service sitting alongside residential is important. I don't, however, subscribe to the view that the... 20 and 30-somethings who dominate the rental sector in the UK, I don't think they're going to live on leafy lanes in suburbia. I do think that we are going to see our cities return, perhaps not to the same strength uh, for a while. But I do know that... you know, given the opportunity, young people want to convene, they want the social life, they want the cultural life, they want, you know, to mix with their friends and and go out to bars and restaurants. And so I do think that we're still going to see quite a lot of urban renting dominating.
0: So Helen, tell me about the Community Blueprint.
1: So, this was a concept that was brought about by the fact that we start when we're creating a building within a community and we do a lot of work pre planning and then it seems to die down and then the people move in. But one of the things that I've realised is that particularly the people that live in residential accommodation, they're in that age group 20 to 40 is the main age group and quite often they want to get engaged in the local community and it's our role really to help them do that whether it's get involved with the local school or the local church or uh, community projects and the reason I think that's important is that helps the community love our buildings but it also helps the people that are in our buildings stay longer because they put down roots and they make other associations and the best example i saw was that we always have a tenant um portal where tenants are talking to each other and we're talking to them. And during um, the start of the COVID lockdown, they, a group of tenants said to us, we'd really like to extend that to the social housing block that's next door. And I thought this is so powerful because actually it means that we can make sure that we can do something good within the building, which makes people feel good about themselves and good about our buildings as well so we just formalised that and called it our community blueprint and across all of our buildings we're rolling that out in in terms of making a a community engagement plan that will endure and when you look at risks for the residential sector what uh, does the crystal ball tell you i think we've got a real problem in the uk in the undersupply of housing i think the government are pulling lots of levers to try and make it happen but for for me the biggest provider of homes in the UK tends to be the house builders who more or less build to order for the rental sector the biggest challenge is access to land and the fact that it is not understood we haven't got enough of it yet and it's not understood by local authorities and so, you know, I was thinking back a couple of weeks ago the Bishopsgate Goods Yard got approval for the ballymore Hammerson scheme that used to be in my portfolio at RailTrack and we started that work in nineteen ninety seven and it got planning permission last week. So you can see it's a long haul unless we really accelerate the system. Surely we can do better than that. Absolutely. Such a long time. We spoke
0: to Baroness Ford, chair of Scottish Television and of New River Reach. She was also former chair at Granger, where she hired you as CEO of the business, arguably taking a risk on bringing you in. Let's hear her take on this.
3: I, I never thought it was a risk because I never had any, I never questioned my own judgment around Helen for one second. Because I had, had, I suppose, I had the privilege of having, having had worked with her and understood just how good she was. But of course, when you hire a chief executive into a public company, um, lots of people have opinions, and some opinions, of course, are more informed than others. And two things constantly were um, raised with me. One was that she had no public company experience at a senior level. In other words, she had not been an executive. And two was frankly was that she was a woman, which I have to say, I, in in this day and age, I still am astonished when people say things like that to me, particularly you know since I'm pretty evidently a woman as well.
1: <laughs> She's brilliant.
0: This was 2016 when when <laughs> you became part of the first all female executive team in the FTSE 250. It boggles the mind that that was presented as a you know as an issue um you have been a a long-standing advocate for diversity and equal opportunities in real estate where are there still problems for women and and what do we need to be doing to create a more diverse industry
1: in general emily i feel i'm sitting with an expert with you on this one but quite often and i'm sure your researchers when they call people up and they speak to women that you know quite often when i try and promote women within organisations you know we're all our worst enemy because we say i don't know if i could do that do you think i could do that job whereas actually how many times have i advertised a job or we've gone through a search and the guys who are completely unqualified think they can do it and some maybe we have to start so much earlier and i do notice certain schools are better at this with giving women that confidence. I think if what Margaret's saying is, you know, in 2016, people are still questioning whether women should be rising to the top, what aspirations do they have for their own daughters? So I think it starts very early on and we probably have to tackle it there. But then the job of leaders, managers within uh, businesses is really to actually identify that this is holding people back and you have to therefore invest and give people projects and ask them to do things and say, I know you can do it. And then when they do it, you build their confidence and you build their CV. And then sadly, they usually leave you. <laughs> but but actually, that's probably generating more talent within the um, property industry. There is that saying,
0: what happens if we spend all this money on someone and train them, and then they leave? And the response is well what happens if we don't and they stay so yes. so it's it's an investment in in people and i think also initiatives like pathways to property trying to uh, highlight real estate as a career to a wider audience is 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 really important so, look, on a, on, a, on a note around some of the challenges of, of being a woman in real estate, um, Chris Bond shared with us his observations of one of the sartorial challenges of being a woman in real estate. Let's have a listen. Oh
2: dear. We were at Mipim at the, and staying at the Martinez and Helen was wearing this very smart pink and black designer suit. And as she walked in to, check, to register in the, in the hotel, the receptionists were all wearing the same suit. <laughs> she came out and she said, It's a good job of got another one. <laughs> and that is very expensive designs. It was consigned to the, to the suitcase for the whole trip. And she was very miffed, but she did tell everybody. So I
1: think that's right. I know, it was so embarrassing. But the awful thing is, until I could get into my room to change it, everybody was asking me to do things in the hotel. And it was a French designer. I bought a really expensive suit, a spring suit, um, and the martinets had chosen to give their receptionists this same French designer, that year. People in the property industry that know me were still walking up and saying... Can you tell me what time the bar and when's the piano? And can you point me to the salon and when does the pool bar open? And I was like, yeah, it's me. <laughs> I'm just wearing a designer suit. <laughs> it's
0: great. There's always a good story for a Mipham about wardrobe crises. I love that you laughed about it. And um, I hope you gave people the wrong advice. Uh, with yeah.
1: Absolutely. In fact, I do not want a career in a five-star hotel reception or any five-star hotel because I've realized how rude people can be it's one of my real bugbears how people talk up and down in the industry and I think it's really I think it's a really really poor sign and you know when I've changed jobs often the people that I've missed have been the people that were you know the security guards that were late at night when I'm working late at night or it's not, I miss my colleagues, of course I do, but I miss that whole infrastructure and the conversations that you have with the people that support you day to day in the office. I have to say, it wasn't my worst MIPIN experience on wardrobe. I did actually end up with one of the partners of uh, what was Bowen Layton Paisner's um, luggage delivered to my hotel room. And... <laughs> <laughs> he'd take, he'd packed, I mean, he hadn't locked it, and I hadn't locked my suitcase either, so goodness knows what he found. But he'd actually packed um, woolly pulleys and um, big, sort of, about size 10 shoes, and I just looked at all this stuff thinking there's nothing I can do with this. <laughs> we had to track and trace my. Uh...
0: You can't even improvise
1: yeah.
0: the black, the pink suit is probably preferable to that. Yeah. But it is, a, it is a good way to judge character, isn't it? The the how people deal with the, and respond to the waiting staff. And, and I guess you also did that on your first date. It's a good way of assessing how yeah. your potential future husband was
1: as 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 character um we have a phrase from he sort of knows all the chefs and every everybody at restaurants and and i call it he's gone off chef bothering now he always pops his head in and thanks them for dinner (laughs) so
0: important to say thank you i love that it's worth also mentioning one of the people we spoke to said of you that as your deals have gotten bigger your heels have gotten lower
1: that is a really great observation, Isn't it? actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it's that ability to dash here, here, and everywhere. But it's um, and during lockdown, I've spent a lot of time in sort of loafers and things, and so the the heels will be that'll be testing on the calves to get back more into the heels. Well, loafers is posh compared to the slippers. I think
0: most <laughs> people are in, including myself. So, although we've all had this time and plenty of practice of being isolated this year, as a real people person, how will you cope if we really do cast you away on a desert island?
1: There are times in the year when I really wish I could go to a desert, desert island. Um, I think one thing about being a CEO of a residential company is you have a pressure that I've never experienced before, which is that every night thousands of people, 23,500 in the case of Granger, put their head on a pillow and you've got to make sure that it's safe, that there's no water coming through the ceiling or that their fire alarms are working or whatever. But it also means I'm out there and in my inbox on a Saturday afternoon might be a complaint that, you know, some neighbor's dog's done its business on the next door neighbor's garden or whatever. And you feel as though it's nonstop. So the desert island sounds quite appealing from time to time, but I would really miss people. I'd be planning my escape. <laughs> I'd be building that boat or um, practicing my swimming. Well, I know someone who will
0: help you escape. Um, let's listen to Baroness Ford once more, who, who shared her first and unchanged impression of you.
3: I was just blown away by Helen when I first met her. Um, and not for the reasons that people often say, you know, someone has made a huge impression on them. Um, she, because she's not a song and dance merchant, Um, Quite reverse, Um, but she is so incredibly centered, competent, charming, uh, just really powerful—a powerful, powerful presence without ever being an overbearing presence or, you know, any kind of caricature of a leader. I mean, she's not; she just is not that song and dance uh, kind of man. But she's fantastic, and I just met her and thought, wow. What an unbelievably impressive woman.
1: I think it's amazing. fair to say, Baroness, <laughs> Ford would be chartering a boat to come and pick you <laughs> up. Oh, oh, she, she is amazing and a, a role model for so many. And, you know, I've learned so much from Margaret. But one of the things that I was really impressed that she did a couple of years ago, which is, she is rallying all of us women to try and establish how we can support other other women rising through the ranks and so not just other women other you know young people because we when I think of diversity now there's a lot of infrastructure going in that helps women but you know, we've got to think of people from different social backgrounds particularly in property who might never have known anyone with a career in property just thinks of it as maybe a state agency or, or whatever and then there's also it's not, as you will be aware ethnicity and diversity of all sorts and I'm really proud about 18 months ago we started to do work on this within Granger and our diversity and inclusion network the group that leads it which is led by one of our young rising stars means that actually we're trying to positively do something about it in the business but but margaret was a real leader in this area bill hughes mentioned you know talking about spotting talent early
0: bill hughes said he had his 10 year old son in the office one day (laughs) and you brought him in on a conference call on a very substantial (laughs) transaction i think it was the lng hq yeah and uh that you spotted an opportunity for someone to come in and and learn, i think says a lot about your 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 eye for the opportunity. Do you remember that
1: absolutely um we had we had sold the site to Metro, Casa, the Spanish company, and uh we had the opportunity to buy it back and the transaction we'd sold it for about 250 odd million and we were buying it back for 96 so it's a pretty good transaction but 96 or whatever it was at the time 96 million was a huge amount of money in the global financial crisis and bill had archie in the office because both of us needed to sign the documentation and i thought you know it's boring he's doing coloring or playing on a computer and i said right i want you to be here to do the check when we actually do the signing and we did it over the phone with Clifford Chance I remember he got a phone and he was checking the timing and the amount of money and all this and he was really involved and I said check the time Archie and he did it and you know sort of I, it's nice that Bill remembers it but I hope Archie does. Um He didn't go into a career in property I believe he's in your industry actually. <laughs> I I'll yeah. probably <laughs> put him off you know, sort of, after that 96 million or whatever it was you know it was sort of it's probably done the biggest deal that do for ten years <laughs> well, bill spoke about that transaction
0: and the as a risk and as the there were thirteen or fourteen criteria that you had to meet that were really quite stringent but
1: you delivered. The important part was that they could have walked away from the original deal so we might never have got the 250 odd million and so we literally (laughs) went round closing down all of the conditions and one of the conditions was about rights of light and I had the pleasure and it was a real pleasure of doing a deal with um, Gerald Ronson and I told Gerald the story that when I was at Railtrack I worked out that to get a return on such a big portfolio I had to make um, £4 million a day that's how much I had to make and that was back in 1997 and I said I'm going to give him the opportunity to make £2 million before coffee and being Gerald he was quite intrigued by that and he was so sweet he kept saying do you have to check this with anyone Helen do you have to check this and we did a deal and everyone was all sort of trying to orchestrate this as being very difficult and I actually found him so straightforward to deal with this was you know, we were buying the rights of light from a building that um, that he owned and uh, we paid a couple of million for them and it was, you know, within the budget. But rather than mess around and do ages and ages of negotiation, we did it really quickly um, in about an hour or so. Just he and I sat there having coffee and then everyone panicked, what have you done, you know, but we got it there. And there was another one, really amusing one, where we had to find out what a, a room was used for and it was in a medical centre And I was working with a young lawyer, Beth, and I said, like, okay, we'll go into the... So bearing in mind I was director of LNG at the time, we'll go in. I'll pretend to faint and they'll take us into the room and we can find out if it's used for any... what the room's used for and whether they need natural light to it. And uh, they're doing all sorts of mad things. Well, it needs
0: to be creative. I'm interested in that um, Ronson experience. What... From a leadership style, you've, very, you've got a very distinctive style. What did you take from,
1: from, from him? Oh, I uh, so he he's just... Inc- I found him incredibly straightforward to deal with. I, I don't know whether anyone's mentioned to you, but I don't like doing lunch. Um, that's because um, whenever a woman goes out for lunch with a man, quite often the maitre d' leaves them for ages and they're not brisk. And I always used to love going out for lunch with Gerald, who's one of the few people, I haven't done it very often, but one of the few people, because he could do it in 40 minutes. I mean, he sort of orders, gets on with it, has the conversation, eats his lunch and and goes. Someone did say about you
0: that you could have three breakfasts. You could, uh, you know, (laughs) you're very efficient when it comes to those types of meetings and that uh, you're good at networking. You're very good at being out there, but
1: making it count. Yeah, sometimes you're exhausted at the end of the day. My day starts very early. I'm a sort of very early riser. So if you're going to your second cocktail party at 8 o'clock and you think, oh, I'd just like to go home and read or whatever, but, you know, you force yourself to do it. I do it particularly because it's very easy not to catch up with people. And I also feel that this is... People associate what I do with just residential, but, you know, I've been in this industry 40 years and 35 of them was all sorts of other sectors and then only the last five have I specialised just in residential so I I do it in part because I'm curious about what's happening in other parts of the industry
0: well and equally people are curious about uh, you so really grateful to you for taking the time to chat with us today Helen Gordon Saint Helen thank you very much indeed (laughs) oh thank
1: you thanks Mm. Desert Island Risks
0: is brought to you by Bowhill Partners, the leading executive search firm in the private markets industry. For more information on this podcast or Bowhill Partners, feel free to visit our website at www.bowhillpartners.com or our Instagram page at Desert Island Risks.